0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. For some time I've had a, I guess a burden on my heart to speak on the subject of creation versus evolution. And it's a t- subject, a topic that I've never tackled before. And on occasions, I've been encouraged to tackle this subject. And we've sort of made a little bit of a start some weeks ago as I've started to, uh, to put some research into the subject. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about these kinds of subjects. And Braden and I have actually been talking about sharing some of this between us. So um, stay tuned. There will be more to come. And hopefully there will be some very practical things that we can all learn and be encouraged about in our faith with God uh, and in God and also in our understanding of who we are as children of God.
1: Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today humbly say thank you for your many blessings. Thank you that you have brought each one of us safely back to this place we gladly surrender to you in worship and praise. You shed your blood for us and died of a broken heart on the cross. You understand those who have a broken heart, broken lives, and broken bodies. We know that you want to heal these people and take them into your arms. Please bless our pastor, as he preaches for the next five weeks. Please send your Holy Spirit to move amongst this church and the people's heart, and make each one of us commit to you more and have a truly converted experience over the next five weeks. Some of our members are not here with us. We ask that you will be with them wherever they are today. The world is not a safe place, but help us find safety and security in you and in your kingdom. Please come soon, Lord Jesus, help us each day to look forward to the second coming and to live in joy and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Just going to make myself a little bit of space up here very quickly. Hopefully, our song leaders will uh, will try and put it back for them. But there's just something I want to illustrate for you as we get as we begin today. We're going to be looking at uh, a couple of different aspects of where we come from as human beings. And so, before we get to that, there we go. You like my monkey? I like my monkey. My, uh, my oldest son, Harley, has put this picture up on his phone for when my youngest son, Emery, calls him. So, you know, brothers, what do you do? So we're going to be, um, in, in many ways, continuing on, continuing on what we've already been talking about. In the last couple of presentations, I've, I've, I've talked about how that God is a God who is incredibly creative and a God who is incredibly personal. And today we're going to be looking at God who is incredibly relational, how God really truly cares for us. And as we begin, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at what the Bible says about the origins of human beings. Because today we're going to be looking at the subject of life. Where does life come from? Why do we have life? Why has God brought us into existence? And in Genesis 1 and verse 26, the Bible says, and God said, let us make man In what? In our image. That sounds pretty special, wouldn't you say? After our likeness. And then it continues on and says, And let them have dominion over the sea, over the birds, over the cows, the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every living thing that lives on the earth. So the Bible begins by outlining where we came from as human beings, and also our position Within this world. Continues on, and so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he. him, male and female, God created them, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God outlines here where, where humans first came from and what their role on this planet is. Now we have a different number of different views in our world today in relationship to these kind of things and so I'm going to try and
1: illustrate something here very quickly. Pastor Lyle has two cards. On the left side of the stage he puts a card with the word theist.
0: So we have the theistic view. Do we have any theists here today? (laughs) <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, so this will help you. That one is the opposite of this one
1: on the right side of the stage he puts a card with the word atheist <laughs> All right, so do you have any theists here today
0: okay oh that that's good, that's good, that's good. I'm glad to see that. All right, that was just a little bit of a uh a trick on uh Trying to oops, this is all stuck itself together now. Trying to look intelligent here this morning and use big words. Okay, so we've got a couple of other uh, things here. First of all, where do we put this one?
1: Pastor Lyle has two more cards. The first one with the word faith.
0: Okay, so that one we'll put that one there. And where do we put this one? The other has observable science. <laughs> okay. I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here today. Okay, I get that. I get that. All right, so let me ask you this. Whereabouts does the average person out on the street
1: put this one? Observable science. Okay,
0: so we'll put that one over here for now, and let's see if we've got any reasons to, to change this at all And as, as, we, as we work our way through. The first thing we're going to look at is the origins of the origins of the, I guess, the atheistic view or the evolutionary view that we have in our world today over here and where it came from and find out is the origins of this particular view of atheism, evolution and observable science. Is it found in religion or is it found in observable science or is it found in areas of faith? And so if we go back in history to find the origins of evolution, we can go back to the ancient Greeks as an example. Um, there were a number of different cultures that developed the evolutionary concept. Many people proposed that Charles Darwin originated the theory of evolution, and when you talk about evolution, he's the person who usually is the first one that pops into people's minds is like yeah, Charles Darwin came up with the theory of evolution. That couldn't be further from the truth. Charles Darwin copied the theory of evolution and refined it somewhat and perfected it from what the Greeks had been proposing in the ancient past. Now, of course, the Greeks believed that life originated from garbage. So garbage produces worms, and that's the origin of life. And so they looked at mud, and they found that if you got mud, you got water and mixed it with mud, sooner or later there would be worms in it. So if you want to create life, if you want to create worms you start by making mud and then you will have worms and so this was their view of the origin of life and they believed that through a process of natural selection uh, we had begun as worms and we had gone from worms to let me see what was it here from worms to to fish to humans was the process for the Greeks now What is fascinating about the Greek version of this is that this is not actually an atheistic version. This was linked in with their whole concept of mythology. So in Greek mythology and Greek religion, they saw this as the origin of life. So this was very, very much a religious concept that they were using here to explain the origin of life. Now, the Egyptians had a view that was somewhat similar. Um, I don't have as much detail on that. I've been trying to chase down a book that somebody told me about and haven't got it yet, so I can't tell you a lot about the Egyptian version, but this was not something that was uncommon in the ancient world. If we move on from the ancient world and we come to the medieval period, in the Dark Ages, we have the same kind of theory that is coming through. So garbage produces mice. So there you have the origin of life. And you can actually read some of the uh, scientific theses that were we'll put forward at this particular time. If you want to produce life, you get enough garbage, you pile it all up, particularly add some sewage, and sooner or later, mice will start coming out of it. Now, you can speed the process up by adding wheat. Somehow, the fermentation of the wheat would speed the process up of creating mice. And so there were very, various recipes that were produced during the Dark Ages as to How to produce life? So basically, the idea was that garbage produces. So we went from mud produces life to well, that's just a form of garbage to actual piles of garbage producing life. And then, of course, we come on to Darwin, and Darwin said that garbage produces life, but you know, begins with um, small life and or smaller life than the last ones, and begins. We've got the whole primordial soup, and the Big Bang, and lots of rubbish that blows up and. So we have life and so what we find what I find very fascinating about this is the whole theory of evolution that we are challenged with today does not find its origins in atheism it finds its origins in religion and in areas of faith. And what is significant is that when it comes to evolution today it is still based on faith. it is still a faith-based mindset and a lot of evolutionists don't like to accept that this is the case. Uh, When we look at the the, the two views, theistic versus atheistic, we find that the the atheistic view tells us that materialism, matter and energy, non-life produces life. So life came from non-life. Now let's think about this for a moment. So let me ask you this. If everything comes from matter and energy in the materialistic view, which one of those two is alive, matter or energy? Neither of them is alive. Neither of those two has life. So you've got complete non-life, and somehow matter and energy had to order itself and suddenly be alive. So let me ask you this question. Has that ever been observed? So that's never been observed, has it? All right. So if we take this, this, this view over here, we can't have the origins of life as being observable science, can we? So If we look at the origins of life, we're going to take this one away because it's not observable science. And anybody who is honest can tell you, no, this is not observable science. Life coming from non-life. All right. Well, let's go over to this side. Then on the standpoint of faith, we have, from, from this perspective... And this person sitting over here, they will say that life comes from life. Is that observable? Yes. yes. All of you who have children have probably observed this taking place, right? This is something we, we observe constantly around us all the time. So when it comes to the subject of life, we can put observable science over here. All right. So if I'm going to accept that, 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 that life comes from non-life... What am, I going to, what am I going to accept that based on? Faith. So we have to put, uh, we have to put faith over here. Because there's nothing you can observe to say that that is the case. And so now we've got faith over there. And do you start to see the mix-up that we start getting when we simply take a few basic scientific principles in relationship to the origins of life and where we come from? And so these are things that are well, well worth us stopping and taking into consideration. And so from, the, from this perspective over here, we would say that there is a living beginning, the source of all life, and this is an observable principle. Now, we can also be honest and we can say, okay, none of us actually saw this. And so it is definitely going to be affected by our worldview as to which side that we take. Because you weren't there at, the, in, at creation, You're not an eyewitness of creation, are you? No. On the other hand, was the atheist there at creation? No. There's no eyewitness of creation, so we need to be honest about where we are coming from. And so there is faith that is based in both sides. The question that comes up is this. Which side requires more faith? When you look at a, a very simple thing such as the origin of life. Well, I would say that this takes a lot more faith because we've never seen this. This one over here takes a lot less faith because, okay, we didn't see it come into, into being, but we see the principles being worked out around us every single day. And so both are going to require faith. Astrobiologist Paul Davis sort of put it like this. How did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. There is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And we talked about information last time we were here. And it's interesting, some of the things that are are stated in relationship to the origins of life. Evolution hasn't been observed while it is happening. Okay, yeah, we understand that. And so over here, the atheist will say, well, you can't have evolution as being observable science because it takes too long. It takes place, and that's a a very useful excuse. I find that there are occasions when I do Bible studies with conspiracy theorists. Lawson is studying with a conspiracy theorist at the moment. Always fun to study with a conspiracy theorist. And when you study with a conspiracy theorist, you can, if you want to, challenge the conspiracies that they are into. Because you can say, well, wait you are got to show me some, some better evidence, you've only got, you know, this very circumstantial evidence that you're giving me. But because it's a conspiracy, there's always a reason why, why the key pieces of evidence have not been exposed to the world. So when I look at this over here, there's a, there's, oh, there's, oh, there's, a, oh, there's a reason, okay, it takes too long. That to me puts it in the category of conspiracy theory because now there's just an excuse. You know, the dog ate my homework, so I can't actually share it with you. Okay, nobody has actually, actually seen evolution taking place over a long period, but they have seen the after-effects, and the after-effects are massively supported. It is like a case in, in a court of law where nobody can actually stand up and say, I saw the murder happen. In other words, nobody has seen this. So let me ask you this question. According to this statement right here, is evolution observable science? so it's not observable science, then what is it? It's faith. Because no one's ever seen it happen. Do You start to see how both of these are a form of faith and both of them are a form of religion. It just depends which kind of religion it is that you prefer to support. Okay, so we need to... uh, Well, let me just uh, consider this one here for a moment. The work of many... Oh there yeah, this is this is this is really good. I forgot about this this little section. So how is it if we have never seen evolution taking place how is it that we have so much very very confident stories about what took place in the ancient past and and, and how we've evolved from here to, here to here to here to here to here to here and we are now here. Where do we get all of these stories from and why are they presented so confidently in the textbooks? What is the origin of these stories? Well, here's how you work out the evolutionary story, if you're going to take an evolutionary perspective, of where we came from. The work of many evolutionary biologists involves the reconstruction of the past. The methods they use do not conform to the standard view. This is the standard view, observable science, what you can see of the scientific method. So evolution has come along, and they say very, very clearly, okay, when it comes to evolution, you can't use the standard view, observable science. So what do you have to do then? If you can't use observable science, you have to reconstruct the past. Let's think about that. Evolutionary biology, in contrast with physics and chemistry, is a historical science. The evolutionist attempts to explain events and processes, processes that have already taken place. Laws and experiments are inappropriate techniques for the ex- explication of such events and processes. Instead, one constructs a historical narrative consisting of a tentative reconstruction of the particular scenario that led to the events one is trying to explain. In other words, you decide, this is what I want to explain, all right, what I'm going to do is sit down and construct a story as to how we came from there to here. That's pretty much how you write a novel, isn't that so? Evolution becomes a form of novel writing. You sit down and you say, well, I want to end up here and this is the method by which I want to end up there so let me come up with a way of writing it down. We cannot use observable science. We cannot use experiments and laws. It's not something that can be testable, observable and repeatable. So we'll write a story about it. And so we have the origin of where the evolutionary theory... Kind of at least they're honest about it. They just use bigger words rather than... You know, I'm a very simple person, so I just say, hey, you're writing a novel. But these guys use bigger words and makes it sound more fancy. Okay, which brings us to the question that we raised at the beginning of our subject, and that is this. Why are there monkeys? And I think this is a very valuable question. You see, if we consider the whole evolutionary process... And we can make a couple of very uh, simple observations. One is that there is millions of these in our world and millions of these in our world and none of those. Why is this so? And, And my big question is, why are there monkeys? At all? Why do monkeys exist? Because you could say, well, you know, these come from a different tree to these, and, you know, they come to a common ancestor down here or something or other. And, uh, you know, people come up with all kinds of theories as to how this might be. But we have to ask ourselves the question if we have millions of these and we have none of those, okay, so we've never seen any one of those walking around, why don't we have any of those? Well, the simple answer is that these were more successful than these, and so these killed off these ones through a process of natural selection. All right, that sounds reasonable. So this one is more successful. So the more successful one survives. Wait, wait. So, well, we're getting, we're getting there. Don't, 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 you don't, don't run too far ahead of me. So the more successful one survives, so then this one is equally successful and equally intelligent as that one. But none of these were able to survive because even though the, this one is more advanced than that one, It can't survive. Am I the only one who who sees a problem here? You know, when I look at this, it's just like, I I scratch my head and go, we've got millions of monkeys in the world, all kinds of different monkeys. We've got millions of human beings in the world, all kinds of different human beings. What happened to all the ones in between? Why don't we have any of those? Well, evolutionists will tell us that there are many, many, many lots of uh, missing links. And it's interesting to observe the scientific process of discovering missing links. Because you'll find, once again, great confidence in the textbooks and, and many scientists will stand up with great confidence and they will say, you know, and, and this is a this is scientific fact, we've established this and we've established this and we've established this and we've established this. And what fascinates me is that every few years they rewrite the textbooks. Why? Because they found that what they pre- presented with such confidence wasn't actually true. And so you'll have this process, you know, a new discovery is made. Then a historical narrative is written about the object that is found. That's where you start. So you make a discovery and you write a narrative about it. Then you make a press release because everybody wants to have their name in the media and everybody wants to have something from our ancient past that gets to be named after them. Okay? Then you write a thesis on it. And then textbooks go out and publish it with great confidence, you know, Scientists are not immune from having an ego and being keen to produce something that is going to get their name out into the public and to make them famous. And so there is a lot of motivation out there to discover something new and to be able to present it in a way that will affect our world. And so you have things like uh, this particular discovery here. This was a whale. They discovered a whale that had legs, a whale with legs and feet. And this was a very, very exciting evolutionary discovery. It was uh, you know, announced to the world and published widely and written up in textbooks, and you can get textbooks, and you see this here. And what it really was was saying how, showing how that we evolved from fish to mammals that were fish to mammals that then walked on the land because here you've got a mammal that can swim around in the ocean but can also walk up on the land, and they're like, here we've got a missing link, One of those things we've been desperately looking for, and at last we've started to, to find it right here. Of course, the whole thesis and the whole story was built around this skull. So you discover a skull, but you don't actually discover a whole skull, you discover the dotted parts of the skull. And from that you have a whale with legs and it gets published in a book with great confidence and excitement until a couple of years later they actually found the rest of the skeleton and they were most disappointed. It wasn't a whale with legs, it was what's called an R-O-U-S, you know what that is? An a rodent of unusual size, that was what they found out that it was. So when it comes to the ancestors, the supposed evolutionary ancestors of humans, all of the supposed missing links in the human chain can still be placed in a single coffin with room to spare if you gather them all from around the world. And it's worth considering some of them. The most complete skeleton in existence of a a missing link between apes and humans is this one here called Lucy. That's the most complete one we have. And of course we know exactly what she looked like. So you find this and then you create that. Anyway, she's a 32 million old ape and she was apparently the first ape that walked upright. So how do they know that she walked upright? Well, it all comes down to the structure of the leg bones right here. The knee bones. The only problem is that these knee bones here, and, and leg bones and femurs and so forth, that they were able to discover in association with Lucy, were found a year earlier than this part of the skeleton. They were 200 feet lower than this part of the skeleton, and they were three kilometres away. It's like, mm, yeah, right. you know, <laughs> And we swallow this. Because they don't publish that part of it in any textbooks. And so you ask the scientists the question, oh, yeah, wild animals carried them away. Yeah, okay, the dog stole my homework again. The dog ate my homework. It's just most fascinating. So how do we connect this bit to that bit? Well, you just do. And then you've got some fame with which you can go out and publish something. And uh, Lucy is still quite popular. Then we had another one called the Australopithecus supposedly one of our ancestors, and you had the Australopithecus gap. And this was a gap in the the chain of missing links that they had discovered, and all of the ones previous to Australopithecus, for Australopithecus back, had very small brains, and all the ones after had very large brains. But there was this big gap in the middle, which is really just a gap between monkeys and humans, but that's another story. And so Australopithecines for a long time were considered transitional forms, but now we've found that, oh, sorry, they're just another form of primate. They're just another kind of monkey. Oh, by the way, Lucy has exactly the same uh, knee bones as an orangutan. A living orangutan today. So anyway, um, we could go on. We could talk about some other ones. Uh, Neanderthal man, he was... uh, Uh, We we have lots of remains of Neanderthals, uh, very close to human beings, one step before a human being. And we know this about them. They were skilled hunters. They believed in the afterlife. They were skilled surgeons. Sounds to me like they were just another form of human being. You think about this for a moment. If we were to take our world right now, flood our world, turn a whole bunch of human beings into different uh, fossils or human remains or bones or whatever else that would be preserved in various parts of the world. And then in 4,000 years from time, an alien race comes to our planet, does some archaeology, wants to find out about the humans that were living on our planet. How many different kinds of humans would they find? Lots, because I can look around our church right now and see lots of different kinds of humans. And all you've got to do is find this slight variation and every scientist out there, I've found something new because it's different from that. Well, guess what? Every single one of you is different from each other. You know, we have rather large people. We have pygmy races. We have races of different colours and shapes and sizes. And praise God for the variety that we have in our world. There is just enough evidence in our world between primates and humans... To build an entire missing link, if we just took the bones that are, that are existing as living creatures right now and buried them and then dug them up in a thousand years from now, we have everything we need to produce all of the missing links that there are as living creatures right now. Of course, we had a few more famous ones. Piltdown Man, uh, he was in textbooks for about uh, 60 years. He was the combination of a human skull and the jaw of an orangutan. They actually soaked it in coffee to stain it so it was the right colour so you could put the two together. And um, yeah, that was a bit sad, that one. Then you have Nebraska Man, and here we have a very confident picture of what Nebraska Man looked like. Of course, Nebraska Man, when he was discovered, was reconstructed, the whole missing link was reconstructed from a single tooth until they found an identical tooth in the jaw of a pig. This one's interesting, Java Man. So you can see this piece of skull cap that they discovered right here. They discovered this this, this skull cap, and they're like, aha, we found a missing link because we have a skull cap. And they also found a femur. So you had the skull cap of a monkey and the leg bone of a human. Like, great. A missing link has been desperate to find all of these missing links because we've got millions of monkeys and we have millions of humans and nothing in between. And so they have to answer the question, why is there nothing in between? Well, this is how you do it. Okay, so the femur that they found was 50 feet away. The human femur was found, was 50 feet away from where they found the skull of Jabba Man. And right beside the femur, they found three human skulls. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my reaction too. You know, I mean, seriously, this is, this is passed off to us as being science. And it sounds legit because a scientist gets up the front and uses big words to explain. I'm, don't, I'm not a scientist. I don't use big words, okay? I just look at things and I go, wait a minute, let me think about this from a, 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 a just a simple logical perspective. You know, are, 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 are people having a bit of a lend of me here? You know? Or are they desperate? Are they driven by some form of desperation to write God out of the picture? So that something has to be fabricated to be able to get rid of God. Then, of course, we had the ochre man discovered in in 1981. And, of course, very detailed drawings of ochre man out there and how he was a missing link. And that piece of skull right there, that's it. That's all we have. And in recent years, they found that that little piece of skull came from a donkey. He was a 17-month-old old, uh, missing link man and then they found he came from a four-month-old donkey. One of the more recent ones uh, was this one, Archaeoraptor. This is a very exciting discovery. This one, because uh, it was published in National Geographic and places like that, uh, very recently. Some of you might remember this one coming out in National. Ge- I remember it coming out in National Geographic and reading the whole article on it and being fascinated by it because here you have a dinosaur with wings and feathers. And so everybody was super excited by this because you've got you've got a, uh, a link between lizards and you know and, and birds. And there'd always been this theory that, you know, dinosaurs turned into birds and, and here you've got this missing link that uh, had been discovered. And, you know, theses as these were written on it, people became famous over it until they found that what had happened was that the person who discovered this particular fossil had been a fossil monger from China who was illegally digging up fossils, found half a fossil, figured that he'd get money, more money for it if it was a complete fossil got two fossils, joined them together. The scientific community went mad over it, got excited over it, published it, wrote theses on it, put it in textbooks, and then, of course, it came out as being a complete hoax. And so nothing much has changed over the history of archaeology, sorry, of uh, paleontology and evolutionary theory and so forth. Of course, this one's Brontosaurus, and Brontosaurus never existed. Until last year, did you know that? He's like everybody's second favourite dinosaur as a kid growing up. You know, T-Rex is everybody's favourite dinosaur, and this guy was everybody's second favourite because he was the biggest of them all. Well, he never actually existed. He was a, uh, I did write it down somewhere, but a long name that I can't pronounce, a less famous dinosaur. Uh, but they couldn't find a head for him, so they found a head from three kilometres away, added it together and going, yep, different kind of dinosaur, we're in good shape. Then they found no, actually is the same as that other dinosaur with the long name. And so Brontosaurus doesn't exist. But then just recently, just last year, they were able to find a minor variation between Brontosaurus and the other one with a long name. And they've gone, ah, yes, Brontosaurus does actually exist. It was a real thing because he's slightly different from the other one. Well, you can get two kangaroos off the side of the road and you can find enough difference in them to to be able to create two different kinds of kangaroos if in 4,000 years from now, if you are digging them up as fossilised bones. Okay, so one of the things that we were uh, talking about with the uh, Australopithecus gap earlier was that how that... One of the, the foundations of evolutionary uh, beginnings of life was that you go from, you know, from monkeys to humans. And why do humans have more than monk, intelligence than monkeys? Well, the answer is really quite simple, is because we have a brain that is three times the size of a monkey. And so they bring up this whole uh, process here where you have a chimpanzee who has a brain of 363 cubic centimetres, the Australopithecus, which is 494 cubic centimetres. Then you've got the Gap that goes between these two, up to the human over here. The biggest problem with this, of course, is that amongst humans, in pygmy races, there are humans that have brain capacities of 800 cubic centimetres. And amongst some of our larger humans, there are humans that have brain capacities of 2,000 cubic centimetres. And the intelligence between the two is no different. It's got nothing to do with brain size. You might think, well, I'm, a, I, I'm a, a giant person, I should have more brain power, more computing power up there. Well, a pygmy comes along and he has just as much computing power in his tiny little brain as you do in your big brain. It has nothing to do with intelligence whatsoever at all. Okay, so we'll consider for a moment very quickly how all of this was actually supposed to have taken place. How do you get from an ape to a human in the, in the process of evolution and life? And so if you were to take some mutations, and mutations take place, we know that, that is observable science. If you get eight mutations per year for three billion years, you have only produced just three gig of information. And they say, oh, well, we've got lots and lots of time, and you get enough time, and, and we can get enough mutations. However, there's some things you need to take into consideration. For every beneficial mutation that adds new information, okay, so you have a beneficial mutation that adds some new information that did not exist before. Let's think about it. That one has to survive thousands of destructive mutations per year. You see this, we, we have this. We see destructive mutations in our DNA and so forth um, in living creatures all the time. And we see information being lost as a result of that. So, for example, you can go to an island down in Victoria where there was a species of bugs living on the island that had no wings. Their cousins on the mainland all had wings. And so what they found was that the ones that were on the island, because it was in a very windy location, they would fly, they would get blown away, and they would die. And so the only ones that survived were the ones without wings. So the evolutionist said, aha, here is evolution at work. This is a process of natural selection. It has given advantage to these bugs on the island uh, because they no longer have wings and they don't get blown away. So is that information being added or reduced? being reduced okay? and then the bay silted up predators came to the island all those bugs got eaten because they couldn't fly away you see how it works we have lots of evidence of if you go to Queensland the red-bellied black snake in Queensland has a smaller mouth than the red-bellied black snake in New South Wales down where we are do you know why? Because up there, the ones that have a big enough mouth to eat a cane toad, eat cane toads and poison themselves. We have mutations taking place. But they all involve a loss of information and a disadvantage, not an advantage. And so we have to have something that would take place that's never been observed and that is a mutation that adds new beneficial information and that one is going to have to survive thousands of destructive mutations that are taking place every year. Okay, it has to not be deleted then by interbreeding. So if you have 100,000 monkeys and one of those monkeys has a mutation that is beneficial, which has never been observed, but it does have one, okay? It has to then... That mutation has to survive that monkey then breeding with another monkey and be passed on to its children. And then, okay, so it gets passed on to, say, maybe one of its children out of, you know, 20 or maybe two out of 20, but it's still then breeding in amongst a pool of 100,000 monkeys. You see the problem? It's very quickly going to be diluted and disappear. Okay, so then it has to increase in numbers progress to progress relative to all the other specimens that don't have it. So the only way that it can survive is if that one monkey with the mutation then breeds incredibly faster than all the other 100,000 monkeys so that it can take over those other ones and its genes can intermingle with those other ones until it takes over. Does everybody see how... Challenging this would actually be. All right, It must be an advantage of such magnitude that it wipes out the previous generation. So that's got to be something uh, very significant so that you know, none of these other monkeys actually survive and hence we have to go digging for all of our missing links. The only problem is that there were a lot of very beneficial mutations that came along that caused humans to grow from monkeys to this, to this, to this, to this, to this, to this, and so they were beneficial, but the monkeys still survived. Hmm. Anyway, that must be repeated in subsequent generations. So it cannot be lost, ever. It must be passed to both male and female. It must survive the weaknesses that are created by interbreeding so the only way it can survive is if it interbreeds in a very select group of those monkeys which are the only ones that have that particular mutation because if it interbreeds with the other ones then it's simply going to disappear so it can only interbreed in its own family but that's going to create all kinds of weaknesses and it's going to create a lot of very very bad destructive mutations and then it must survive, of course, the lack of defence mechanisms. And a very famous example of this is the human eye, and this is the evolutionary process of the eye. And so you've got photoreceptive cells right here, and then there's a bit of a dint made right here, so that makes it sort of... Um, so you can detect light in directions, and then that dint starts to close over here so that it creates a pinhole so that you now... Getting towards the point where you can start to actually see stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but who here has ever got something in their eye? Yeah, you ever? it's not nice, is it? But our eye has certain defence mechanisms that God has created to get rid of things that are in your eye. Namely, my wife who comes along and pulls it out of my eye for me. But also, you get tears and you can wash it out, and all these kind of things. We have got fingers and hands so that we can, you know, we can we can find it, etc and clear it out of our... I sort of look at this one here and say, OK, all right, let's say you start with that, and then you go to that. That's just going to fill up with dirt, isn't it? And then this one? Imagine how much dirt's going to get packed in that and has to get all the way down to here before there's any defence mechanism. And that's just a very, very simple illustration that we have right there. So why, do, why, why, why in our head? Well, you know, why do we have two? Why don't we have missing links that are just a cyclops, you know, with one eye, or eyes in their feet? How are the unprotected stages an advantage? You know, why is this an advantage over that? Because this one's filling up with dirt, whereas that one washes itself clean. You know, it just sort of, anyway. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Psalms chapter 8. Psalms chapter 8. And I want to look at another aspect of life. Psalms chapter 8. And we're going to look in verse 4. The Bible says in Psalms 8 and verse 4: What is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and the cows beast of the field, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What does the Bible say about the origins of life in relationship to us as human beings? The Bible says that we were created by God, and we were created by God as a very, very special kind of creature created in the image of God and given this world as a place to look after on God's behalf. It all belongs to God. It is given to us so that we can look after it on God's behalf. Of course, we find that our world is scarred with sin. But in being created in the image of God, let's stop and think about who God is for a moment. We find that God is a very creative God. He created the universe. We've looked at that already. Not only is He a creative God, but He is a relational God. He is a personal God. He is a God who designed each one of us personally because He wants to spend eternity with us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He wrote it out. This is who this person is going to be and brought us into existence because He loves us. But there are other aspects of being created by God and created in the image of God that make us unique. There are many things that we have as human beings that other parts of the animal kingdom do not have that show us traces of being created in the image of God. For instance, think for a moment about self-reflective life. If you take as an example this particular creature here, Is that a successful creature? Yeah? Plenty of them out in the ocean? Highly successful. How often do you find, or do you ever find, a shark that contemplates its origins, where it came from, where it's going to? Is there life after death? How often do you find a shark that considers morality or spirituality You see, every single one of us has a God-shaped hole in our heart. A place in our heart, a place in our mind that only God can fill. And people will desperately, desperately, you see it over and over again, try and fill that hole with anything and everything. And they'll be pulling stuff in, pulling stuff in, pulling stuff in, trying to find fulfillment, and they never do without having God in their life. But where does a shark have that experience? Where does a shark find a need for relational experiences, for the love that we have with each other as a family? A shark lays its eggs and swims away and forgets that it even reproduced. But we live for our relationships and God desires a relationship with us. When do you ever find a shark that pokes its head out of the ocean and admires a sunset. Because we love to poke our head under the ocean and admire what the shark gets to look at, don't we? When does this ever happen? And and what makes it an advantage to us in the evolutionary process that we have self-reflective life? What advantage is there? If we look at the shark, the shark has all the advantages needed for survival and very successful survival. But God gave us all this as a very special gift. The Bible says we were created in God's image. Beauty, meaning and love are things that matter to us. If life was just purely materialistic, We could all just be like sharks, just mindless creatures that go around killing and eating whatever we can find, with no morality whatsoever at all. Why is it that human beings are moral beings? You know, when I think about this right here, it brings to mind an aspect, which in my mind is probably the greatest aspect the greatest attribute that has been given to us by God as creatures created in the image of God. And it comes through like this. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not die, but have everlasting life. Is that good news? Yeah? Let's think about this for a moment. God gave His Son. God sacrificed Himself, so that we could live. When a shark lays its eggs and swims away, now I, I know that you'll often see it in other parts of the animal kingdom, but is self-sacrificing love necessary for survival? Is that an attribute that is a benefit to us in survival? Not if you look at the shark. Not at all. But self-sacrificing love is an attribute of God And that's an attribute that we have because those of you who are parents know that if you had a choice to give your life for your child, you would not even hesitate. Isn't that so? And if you haven't been a parent, you don't understand how that actually works. I never did. I still don't understand how it works, but I know that I wouldn't blink. It wouldn't even be a question. It wouldn't even go through your mind. Where does that come from? It can only come from God, because we have it from the moment that we have children, you know, we could have more children, we could replace the children, there's no, no, no difficulty, no, no challenge there. It's not necessary to, to maintaining the species. But the Bible says that God gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not die but have everlasting life. That is self sacrificing love, that is something that God has given to us as human beings. Some time ago, I shared this story in my seminar last year. I'm going to share it with you this morning because you may not have actually been there for it, but some time ago there was an earthquake. In 2009 it was, in China, big earthquake. Some of you may remember it. Rescuers were going out, searching through the rubble, desperately looking for people who had survived. And they came across, in the rubble, deep down under the rubble, they came across a woman who was sort of hunched over, almost in in an attitude of prayer, and they were able to dig down and eventually reach in and find out that she was stone cold dead. And so being an emergency kind of a situation, they left her there. You have to go and find those that are still alive in the limited amount of time that you have. But as the rescuers were leaving, one of the rescuers thought that he saw something unusual and it prompted him to go back And he reached in again, and he reached underneath the woman, and he felt something warm. There was some warmth there. Cleared a little more rubble away, and pulled out a perfect baby boy that had been sound asleep. Wrapped up in a blanket. And as he pulled out this little, this little baby that was there wrapped up in a blanket and he started to, he called to the other rescuers. They were all excited. They came running back to see this little miracle of survival. And, and as they, they were sort of stumbling across the broken ground, a mobile phone fell out of the blanket. And somebody picked up the phone and flicked it open. It was old clamshell style. Flicked it open and there was a message on the screen. And the message read like this. My dearest child, if you are able to survive, you must always remember that I love you. Where does that love come from? The love where a mother gives her life for her child. It comes from God because we were created in the image of God. It comes to us from a God who came to this earth and gave his life for us. When God created us as human beings, he created us with special attributes far and above the rest of creation. Evolution doesn't explain this, but God does. Friends, we serve a God of incredible power, but we serve a God of incredible love. Don't you want to serve him as well? Father in heaven, this morning we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that we are created, given life in your image. And that you have given to us that self-sacrificing love that you have. Father, we thank you for this great privilege. And we thank you for dying for us to redeem us, to be a part of your kingdom. We ask this now in Jesus' name. This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit adventist-streaming.org. Academy will now sing Redeemed.
1: can tell, I know that the light of his presence with me doth continually dwell.
0: Redeemed, redeemed,
1: redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed how I love to proclaim it his shall and forever. Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. His love is the theme of my song. His love is the theme of my song. song. Redeemer. pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.